Boom. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Agitator, the podcast where Kelby, Losak, and I talk about extreme Japanese cinema. Today, we are going to be talking about 1998's Bullet Ballet, directed by Shinya Tsukamoto of Tetsuo the Iron Man fame. Kelby, what the fuck is up, dude? How you doing? Oh, you know, just sweating my ass off in this fucking house with no power going on mm-hmm. three three four days now no power um yeah first day it's like oh this shit's cool no distractions uh the family's just outside you know we're picking up the yard because hurricane what nicholas fucking gay ass name hurricane nicholas mm-hmm. blew through here and fucked some shit up um not too bad uh Harvey was hell because of all the like uh, river water that it pushed into the street and like all the flooding and shit. We didn't flood, but uh, we've yeah we've had no power for a while. Um, we got some shit fucked up outside, but the house is fine, so it's whatever. Was Harvey the one that uh, fucked up your car? Yeah, no, no, no. That was a random. Uh, that was just a thunderstorm. Yeah, we get really bad storms down here. (laughs) It's wild to think about because here we have rain. I live next to a pretty sizable, uh, probably about three and a half to four foot aqueduct. So whenever it rains, it it goes out pretty quickly. But it's crazy to think that of living in an area where when you start to see storm clouds, you got to start thinking like, hmm, is this it? Is this the one? Yeah, and like uh, pre pre Harvey, people would say things like, "Oh, if it ever breaks that levee, then it's fucking like Kevin Costner's Waterworld. Like that shit ain't gonna happen." And then it happened, and now it's all like, mm-hmm. and then the the river like never went down to the level it was before. It's always like right there at the levee, and you just yeah, you drive by looking at it like any day now. <laughs> Y'all live on the beach. Yeah. Yeah, the beach and the river. So we're like between the Brazos and the Gulf of Mexico. That's fucking crazy. That's fucking... Do y'all have flood insurance? No. <laughs> <laughs> fucking crackers. <laughs> fucking crackers. <laughs> this is... Welcome to Agitator, the working class podcast. <laughs> I was gonna say, it's like y'all live basically in a little fish tank, like a reverse fish tank. And, you know, on all sides there's these huge bodies of water. And somebody comes by and says, Would you like to, for a low fee of, you know, $50 a month, you can get flood protection up to $100,000. And Kelby's like, Did you say $50 a month? No. no <laughs> Fuck you, I don't even pay for Netflix. <laughs> oh man yeah i'm out here on my front lawn watching the characters walk by i live next to a bus stop and so there's a different group of you know backpacked transients that walk by every day and there's this one that i've been seeing he's like a overweight filipino dude in like a sailor's cap he's walking a dog that guy's got fucking style for days but you know, also in my front lawn, there is a almost used up toilet paper roll with uh, 
with shit on it. <laughs> and uh, that had to have fallen out of one of these fucking meth tragedies backpacks. And uh, I guess in my front lawn it shall stay because I'm not touching that shit. <laughs> so. That's uh. That actually makes me think of Bullet Ballet, the uh, the movie we're going to be talking about this episode, because uh, I felt like watching it, um, you know, a lot of these extreme Japanese movies and these, like, uh, street movies and whatever, they have a sense of vibrancy and fun to them, and mm-hmm. this had that occasionally, like in, in certain sequences or whatever, but it felt very real. In, in yeah. a way that, like, yeah. American movies ha- uh, or most American storytellers have a hard time of doing. it Every once in a while, like, it's not like it's absent in American art, but um, Americans have, a, have trouble doing real because there's all kinds of emotions involved and there's all kinds of heel turns and there's all kinds of just organic, like, uh, unfolding of scenarios, complex people and... Um, you know, there's always the temptation to dip into melodrama or mm-hmm. uh, to create some tragic cautionary tale or whatever. And this just, it felt honest. It was unsettling sometimes. Mm-hmm. It was depressing at times. It was uh, exciting and rewarding and like, oh, yes, you know, moments of little moments of joy every once in a while, like. Uh, yeah, it felt real, like that, uh, that, mm-hmm. like that shit falling out of the backpack type of real. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that Americans have trouble uh, doing stuff like this, and I think it's because Americans have a warped idea of what real means. I think that in America we confuse real for gritty. And so you end up with a bunch of HBO prestige dramas, like in the in the true detective vein, which I like true detective, but I'm talking about, you know, sharp objects or whatever, which are just these total downer shows where everybody's drunk all the time and a mess and, you know, everybody's a fucking serial killer and everything's in these muted gray tones uh, instead of vibrant beautiful black and white like bullet ballet and you bring up a really important point because that's not reality i have never met someone anyone in my entire life whose life is as shitty as some of the characters in these gritty dramas and that's not an element of privilege because if you knew where i grew up i knew some pretty fucked up down on their luck people you know trailer people basically but that was that was never the entirety of their existence you know what i mean like most of those people are funny as fuck they like to drink and have fun and do drugs and watch tv and play video games and do backyard wrestling and listen to icp and they actually for the most part they feel less sorry for themselves than several trust fund Brooklyn hipsters, right? Who are just always online like, oh, my life is shit. My life is terrible. Yeah. The people who I grew up around, you wouldn't be caught dead 
saying some shit like that because someone would call you gay <laughs> very quickly. Yeah, yeah, and because like it's probably because that side of the spectrum is the one making the most art on this side of the pond is why it comes across mm -hmm. like that because it's uh it's voyeuristic. It's not from actual experience. Mm -hmm. And the thing is too before we get into bullet ballet which I want to start trying to get into the movie a little bit sooner because I realized in the past few episodes listening back to them I talk for like 20 minutes and then we get to the movie which is not how we get new listeners to finish episodes because they don't know who the fuck I am and they don't care <laughs> um, <laughs> They're like, I um, came to this book gay podcast to learn about COVID to learn about, yeah exactly hey it's important bro no, I'm not going to get started. Don't bait me like that, bro. Don't bait me like that. But it really comes down to the fact that people in the cities are really atomized and disconnected from a sense of community. And the reason, I mean, they are genuinely depressed. I actually believe that. I believe that you can be rich. And in fact, I think being rich is more likely to make you depressed than being poor is i think that see poor has these highs and lows that are untouchable by the sort of gray malaise of wealth because when you're poor like i said you're either fucking killing a bottle of kd and taking a bunch of xanax and just fucking having a good ass time or you know your rent is due tomorrow and you don't have the money <laughs> and you're like, fuck, my life is fucked. But the rich don't have any kind of sense of community, right? And I've been reading this book called The Disappearance of Rituals by Byung-Chul Han. And uh, this is kind of his, he's a really astute critic of the neoliberal regime. Uh, he's a South Korean-born Swiss-German philosopher. He writes in German. And uh, basically, he talks about in the disappearance of rituals, the fact that ritual does things to time and it does things to your relationship to a community where it's like this unspoken resonance that doesn't have to be filled by individualism. And he like, I'm only like two chapters in, so I'll have a full report later. But it seems like what he's getting at is that the absence of any kind of uh, mutually agreed upon community symbols upon which we can like put our unthinking resonances and oscillations into leads to an individualized atomization that leads to depression, leads to sadness. Mm -hmm. So anyway, anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there because we're going to talk about 1998's bullet ballet would you like to summarize the plot or do you want me to do it yeah so basically um a man who is a, uh, I think he's fairly successful or at least a, a decent a median wage um type of dude uh working in commercials he is mm -hmm. uh his girlfriend kills herself uh, he comes home at the start of the movie to find that she has killed herself and he's talking to the police um, and she killed herself with a chief special that uh, I think is imp 
implied that she got on the streets or something because this movie has a lot to do as well with uh without getting on a tangent um with like a lot of the realism of the streets like how hard it is there to obtain a gun and different shit like that and uh but he becomes obsessed with this gun this like he he has to get one for himself and he wants to kill himself with it after well i think he wants to kill uh the people who he blames for her lifestyle or whatever and um so he starts antagonizing like these street punks and everything after searching high and low to obtain a gun a specific gun and uh How far do we go before, like, how do you... Well, actually, we can stop right there. That's a good start to the show, because you brought up several important points here. Number one, the contrast between how easy it is to get a gun in America, which means, like, you go to the 7-Eleven, and you're just like, hey, I want a gun. No, not really. Not not a Seven Eleven, but you know, they're everywhere. Yeah, right? I, just, I have a gun. I just got a new gun. You have several. The other day, you have a new gun. You get a new gun. You have like, you have weapons of war in your house, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know the idea that this guy is having such a hell of a time because like he goes onto the street and he finds he keeps asking foreigners for guns, which I thought was really funny, like. Americans, uh, I don't know what they're supposed to be. The English is obviously not anybody's first language, um, which I always think is funny. I think people speaking English with a foreign accent is just, it just cracks me up. <laughs> um, but like, uh, he goes to a bunch of foreigners and he finally gets to a guy who will sell him a gun. And I did the math for our equivalent of twenty thousand dollars, right? Jesus like, Christ. It's, it's a huge sum. I think they, because they say, t- I think it's like 20 million yen or something like that is what he ends up paying for it. I might be wrong about that. I thought it was like 200 uh, if million it's, or something like that. I just know the numbers yeah. were outrageous. I know yen is like dog shit, but like, yeah. Right. <laughs> so he ends up paying this astronomical amount to this guy and he gets back to, or he goes to a bathroom to unwrap his present and it turns out to be a squirt gun. <laughs> so he gets. He gets rolled, but he ends up spending just an astronomical amount of money. He ends up actually marrying a Filipino lady who wants to stay in the country in order to get a 38 special. That's right. Um, she pays him, right, to, like, marry her? No, she doesn't pay him. The deal is that, oh. is that he marries her and he, and he gets the That's gun. right. Yeah, because she, yeah, he comes up to his apartment and she's outside the door pointing a 38 special. Or, a, yeah, whatever, at him. And um, right, and she's like, "I hear you want one of these. You have to marry me." Yep, and I'd be like, "Damn, sounds like a win-win for me." What's the pussy situation gonna be? <laughs> you know, um, because she says, she says, you know, she's like, "I can actually be a wife." I'd be like, "Damn, I get the gun, and I get a sex slave. Sign me up." <laughs> um. But uh, human trafficking is wrong, just so that everybody understands that. Oh, is that what the question um, I don't know, man. I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to, to, you know, be a little libertine about the whole thing, you know? Like, it's all good. I'm sex positive. Um, 
So, before he actually gets the gun, though, he constructs his own, which I thought was a fucking dope sequence. Hell yeah. Uh, he's kind of, yeah, he's going around to different, uh, would you call them metallurgists? What's the, what's the word for what these people do? They, well, yeah, I, I mean, when he goes to several different places. He goes to, like, a, um... It seemed like one dude he went to was just some kind of, like, tinkerer, like, yeah. somebody who just ditched it. And then he goes to, like, yeah, some, like, metal yards. He goes to, like, a junkyard, I think, and mm-hmm. he's just mm-hmm. asking everybody about these, like, um, specific parts and whatever that he, that he looks up, that he yeah. feels like he needs to make a gun. And he ends up with this badass-looking weirdo... Uh, you know, monstrosity of a of a gun that doesn't really work that well. And Sukamoto talked about the research that he did about how to build it. And he said, you know, you can build your own gun. Obviously, he's like, it wouldn't have looked the way that the gun in Bullet Ballet looks, but I liked it, and I thought that that he made the right choice. Uh, talking again about realism versus kind of hyper realism. Everything in Bullet Ballet looks so fucking cool and and good Um, That yeah, it wouldn't have made sense if it was just like this little dopey looking piece of metal It actually looks like this kind of I don't know bizarre steampunk gun that he uses to Menace the teens that have beaten him up Um, Which I also thought was an interesting point apparently at this time in the mid 90s when he was writing the script to this Apparently there was a real problem with street gangs in Japan and, you know, regular, like, good students, good kids, whatever, going out on the street and, uh, you know, robbing people, accosting them, raping, you know, whatever. And uh, Tsukamoto was writing this movie and then he got mugged, like, while he was writing it, which is fun. Like, that's how magic works, right? Uh I mean, like, the creativity starts to bleed into real life. But he, um, so he starts writing this movie about, you know, these disaffected youth and how they don't, they're not really able to feel things outside of this kind of violence. Apparently these gangs were called teamers, which is really silly, um, and probably something is lost in translation. But I was wondering what you felt about the, the, the youth angle and its relationship to uh, the old, that kind of generational gap thing that's so present in Mike's films and in this one. Yeah, I was, I was thinking, I was thinking of Mike because of that. It was like this, these generational gaps showing up again, um, especially at the end. Whenever it's like the, uh, the dude coming to like from an opposing gang. Um, no, not an opposing street gang. It was like somebody that they fucked over or something along the line like a more wealthy guy that they fucked over and then he shows up to uh deliver the reckoning to the the disaffected punks and um it felt like uh the old punishing the young and mm-hmm. it's well that's go ahead sorry well I'm, i mean the whole like whatever you want to call it endemic of disaffected youth that has been going on for several decades now is just a a reaction across the globe like it's not obviously uh not exclusive to america not 
I wouldn't say it's exclusive to Japan either. Um, it's just a, a symptom of being dealt a shitty hand from a, you know, past either disaffected themselves towards their families, like generations, or, uh, or spoiled generations who just like soaked up mm -hmm. all the resources mm -hmm. and gave us shit. Like, right. And the thing about kids, man, especially when you're in your 20s, I don't know how much if I would take any amount of money to go back to my 20s because I was such a mess. But I do feel like I had a purpose and a... Uh, uh, how do I put this? I was about to say clarity, but that's the wrong word. But I guess things seemed much simpler and my rage was much easier to justify. So I could act like a shithead and, you know, feel like I was completely justified in, in doing so. And then you get to your older age and everything gets complicated. You start to have things like bills and a family and whatever. And all that kind of, you know, bitterness goes away to a certain extent for some people. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, the, 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 kids, the kids in this movie... Uh, struck me as really confused and unfeeling and then hyper-feeling and I just I really feel like it captured a kind of youthful energy that not very many movies do because I think Sukumoto I think he's in his 40s when he made this I want to say 1998 he was born in 1960 he's probably filming it in 1997 so he would have been 37 when he was making it yeah yeah he doesn't look old I mean because he's the star of it too Right, oh. as is the case with a lot of his movies. I've, I've recently been on a Sukumoto binge. So any movie that you want to watch by him next, I'm down because I watched uh, Tokyo Fist, Vital, uh, Snake of June, and Tetsuo Two. So I've just and I'm probably gonna watch more today because I'm just going through his whole filmography. I'm completely uh, obsessed with this, with this guy, with his movies. Um. But yeah, he puts himself into those lead roles. But you talked about at the end when the old guy comes and starts killing the the gang, basically just starts like executing them. That's what you were referring to, right? Yeah. At the at the end. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that that's a really interesting plot point because the sort of uh, main male youth gang member. Well, actually, I should probably just look up this guy's name so that we actually have names for these characters. Let's pause for just a second. <laughs> we'll cut this out. So there's like cool hair mama's boy. There's a, a wannabe yuppie. There's Mr. Club owner. There's oh, mm -hmm. we this shows how how uh, woke we are. We have gone this far without failing with by uh, failing to mention that um, this is one of the best. Uh, female performances in any movie that we've covered so far oh definitely yeah yeah and Sukumoto goes further into that with Snake of June by making the uh, the main character actually it's completely woman centric um, but uh, in this one Chisato her name is Ch Chisato uh, is a great character who like clearly wants to die and who will stand very close to subway trains and <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and shit like that. So I, th 
think that the leader of the gang is Ide, I want to say. Ide? I'm looking it up on IMDb here, but I honestly can't remember. Anyway, eBay, he has a Amazon, friend who's... one of those. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but he has a friend who's a boxer, which uh, parallels Tokyo Fist in a very interesting way. Um, and his friend who's a boxer is like this total specimen. He's uh, winning fights. He's praised by his father, who is a Yakuza uh, uh, big boss or whatever. And for some reason, at some point, Ide takes the the gun, capital T, capital G, because the, the gun basically finds its way into the youth's hands and they use it to menace more people and steal more money and shit like that. But Ide actually shoots the boxer, again, for some reason, not really sure why. Uh, and then that triggers this old Yakuza guy to uh, essentially execute the entire gang, right? Except for a few, a few people make it out. But, uh, but yeah, that kind of old taking revenge on the young thing is interesting because Tsukamoto has said in interviews that he actually feels like Bullet Ballet is one of his less successful movies. And the reason why is that he says that there was a lot of stuff going on in his head and he put it all into this movie because he's a maximalist. And he takes every idea that he has and he puts them out in these movies. But he said that he felt like it wasn't getting through to the audience. Like the audience wasn't getting what he was trying to say. And he said that he felt like he, after that movie, he began to attempt to streamline his more manic tendencies into more linear film progressions. Which is, um, that's wild to me right? Because I did watch A Snake of June, which was 2002, so three years later, and uh, I liked that one a lot less. And then I watched Vital, which was 2004. I liked that one a lot less. Um, there's something about the, the creative spirit getting tamped down by public opinion that, uh, I, that I feel like Miike never gave into, but maybe Tsukamoto did just a little bit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you can just, it's one of those things that um, it's always hard to talk about and describe because you just have to feel it. It's more than, it's not the vibe. Like the, the vibe can come from uh, a feeling of something already being made, but the spirit of something is what you're putting into it while it's being created. And mm -hmm. you can't fabricate that or copy a formula for the spirit of something. So like, if you just wanted to try to make a movie like this, like for plot point reasons, for like symbolism, for message or whatever, it wouldn't come through the same because he had that manic spirit behind it. Like he mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. driven to make this movie. He wasn't trying to, he was trying to deliver a message, but he wasn't trying to construct this movie if that makes it you know what I mean like mm -hmm. and that's why I try so hard to just throw all the message and shit out the window and just trust in the subconscious that like if mm. you know not critique like why am I interested in this why do I want to tell this story it's like just don't even ask that question just do it yep that's a hundred percent it David Lynch is famous for saying after you make a movie they want you to talk about it what they don't realize is that the movie is the talking exactly and lynch is another person who gets it 100 percent, obviously but when you create art you are accessing your subconscious 
uh, you're tuning into what I'd call on my other podcast, the No Country podcast, the Ghost Radio Frequency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you are engaging in this type of language that is outside of speech. Again, because that is why you make art in the first place. If you just wanted to say something, you could just say it. That's what we're doing here on this podcast. But with a movie, you are attempting to convey a feeling, feelings. uh, But most importantly, and I know this sounds like the most basic bitch shit in the entire world, but you're also just trying to make something cool that's like interesting to look at for an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of the hyper-realism thing whenever you brought up... um the gun, another element of hyper-realism in this is the characters themselves. Uh, they're not just... Because if you just wanted to show... I, I mean, sure. Like, you, you were describing people earlier, like, miscreants around your house and shit. Like, you know, there are interesting-looking people everywhere, of course. But, like, these street punk gangs are permeated with, like, interesting-looking characters. There's, like, the dude with the super cool, like pompadour and sunshades and then there's like the the sort of older big brother figure and the club owner and he's got like tattoos and long hair and he looks kind of like the beach bone type and uh mm-hmm. or i guess there's no beach here but like biker gang type or whatever and um then there's like the opposing gang there's the dude with the spiky blonde hair and they're all wearing cool you know they just look like they stepped out of a magazine even though they're street punks correct that's a very important point a couple of things before we get back to that the guy with the pompadour one of the best touches in the movie is before he gets executed by the angry old yakuza he calls his mom and tells her that he's not going to be home for dinner and i thought that was such a great move on Sukimoto's part to kind of like show that as violent and aggressive as these kids are, they're still kids. And I think he does that to a certain extent with all the characters, right? With how they cry, how they're irrational, all this kind of stuff. Like you get this impression that there is a lot of sympathy for every character in his movies, which is um, something that I think he carries over into every movie of his that I've watched. Um, what? Wait a minute. What did you end on? I lost the I lost the thread on that. Um, what the fuck were you talking? I about? was just talking about how cool the kids looked, like they stepped out of a magazine cool. or something. Right. Yes. Okay. And then the other thing is that so Sukimoto's movies move very quickly. The, there's kind of a what used to would have been called an MTV style of editing, which just means fast paced. Now MTV doesn't do music videos, so you know. But it's a music video style pacing where like shots tend to last maybe two, three seconds at the most. But I was uh, commenting on this on my letterboxed review of Snake of June, where what makes his movie so interesting is that every single shot, if you were flipping through a coffee table black and white photography book, you would just like to look at at that. Like if they took every shot in bullet ballet yeah. and made a big thick book out of it, you could spend hours just like looking at the shots because they're beautiful, you know? Um, and that's what I think makes his movies, his movies, I think, I think Mike is better. Um, not that it matters, but I think that uh, Sukimoto is definitely 
more visually interesting than Miike. Because um, Miike is much more workmanlike, you know? He's like, he'll he'll get his good shots in, right? But he's also like, let's just make this fucking movie. Let's just, let, let's, let's do it. We got like seven days to make this shit, so set it up, shoot the fucking thing, let's keep it moving. But Tsukamoto uh, is an interesting uh, kind of the word that I'm looking for. Sukamoto is an interesting contrast. There we go. To Miike. Whereas where Miike's made 113 movies, <laughs> I think Sukamoto's made like a dozen. Yeah. And all of his movies take like a year to two years to make. Even though they're so fucking short. Like they're all like an hour and 20 minutes. But he just like, he's so meticulous with every frame that uh, it's, it's two different beasts. Yeah, he's obsessive. You can uh, you can tell, and you can tell in the way that, like again, like with Tetsuo, how we talked about how it feels um, professional and like uh, incredible, like nothing, no boom mics and strings, not that kind of handmade, but just like a, it feels real, it feels handmade. Mm-hmm. I can see like how. Uh, obsessive and how how grating it must be to like get even these short movies because he doesn't cut away from a lot he doesn't play any cheap tricks he's just like like when the chick is standing up against the train i read about how they did that like she was uh so he like flattened the image to make it look like she was even closer to the train than she was and then uh the close-up of her boots like they were like holding sticks inside of the boots and actually touch the train with them so like and then just the way like with the mtv editing going back and forth at real fast paced and zooming in on this and that it's like holy shit it's like really intense when that you know scene comes up um Mm -hmm. which not you know i don't know people have their own opinions about behind the scenes like myth busting and stuff and not wanting to know certain magic like that but uh I just thought it was cool from a creative perspective of just how obsessive he gets over making sure that like it's like we're gonna make this happen (laughs) it's not just like all right well how do we we got to get through this uh but i ain't got time to like dwell on this scene he's like nah i'm gonna sit here and obsess over it and right right and with this particular scene what's so interesting about it is that today that would just be done with cgi and Say what you will about CGI, I think sometimes it's really well done. If it's non-intrusive, I think CGI is cool. Um, But for the most part, when a big effect like that has to come up, it just looks fucking fake. It looks fake, it doesn't look real, and it lacks any kind of soul. So with this train shot where he's using, um, you know, image flattening to like make her look close, at the same time, I mean, that's really her, and that's really a train. And when he's, you know, scraping the boots against the side of the the train, those are real boots scraping against a real train. You see what I mean? Uh-huh. So it's it's like that kind of shit is uh, is just really interesting to me. You know, going back and watching old John Woo movies like Hard Boiled and A Better Tomorrow and stuff, um, it's this idea of seeing bodies in motion in these action scenes and like seeing all the squibs go off at the right time and like these big geysers of blood shoot out of people like you watch these movies and you wonder how they were able to pull this off so exactly and i think that 
what's missing from movies right now uh, is the sense of watching human beings achieve something interesting in physical space. Um, Gaspar Noe, when he was making his movie Climax, did you ever watch Climax? Yeah, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, it was, pr- it was pretty good. He had a lot of dancers. And uh, Noe says that he prefers to watch Cirque du Soleil performances rather than movies now because he likes to watch Bodies in Motion. And that always stuck with me because, you know, that, I think that's why I just find modern cinema so inert and boring because, you know, it's like I know it's all done in whatever the high-quality version of Photoshop is, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and there's just something not as fun about watching even, like... You know, you go to watch Avengers Endgame, which is not a fair comparison to make, but I'm going to make it anyway. And you see this big battle with all these superheroes taking place. And it's like, I don't know, just like, I was bored when I watched that. Like, more bored than I was watching real boots scrape against a real train, regardless of whether there were sticks inside of them or or whatever. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's that, that tangibility, that feeling that it was created that it was made that like there's no uh, without celebrating human achievement you kind of end up in these disaffected youth like scenarios where it's just like numb and nihilistic and like nothing matters like that's how i feel like things are heading with the cgi shit just makes me depressed like i started watching Mm -hmm. a end game just out of like obligation I guess because you know 13 years ago started watching those fucking Marvel movies or whatever and I was like the shit mm-hmm. sucks like I want to kill myself mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah no exactly but um, see if there's anything else on Bullet Ballet so the architecture is amazing the shots are amazing the way it's edited together is amazing there's something also um, I know you actually you have notes that we could get into because you did your due diligence and actually wrote down thoughts about this but I do just you know as kind of a final summation on my part before I turn it over to you um, the fact that he was looking to make something that was internal and that didn't resonate with audiences in the way that he wanted it to there's a delicate balance with art where you want uh, of course it's communication right of course, like you and I write books and we don't give a fuck, but we do want readers, you know, we want people to read it and we hope that people enjoy it overall. However, there's really something to these instances of filmmaking where uh, an artist goes so inside themselves to pull something out uh, that, that I feel really connected to. And I feel connected because of the difference, because it's not me, right? Because it's not something that I would have done. When I read Tom Mess, who I'm, gosh, I'm just really becoming like not a huge fan of, actually. (laughs) Um, He's always talking about like what movies should have done and what other movies have done and how this could have been done better. And it's always this idea that there is a correct way to do these things. And I'm like, I want to be jarred by the alienness of filmmaking, right? I want to look at something and be like, I have no fucking idea what's going on in this guy's head, and that's interesting. 
So that's that's how I'll I'll sum it up. Yeah, yeah, and I was thinking about some similar stuff uh, because it's you know a film that one of the major themes is suicide, and uh, you know I have uh, you know I've always struggled with suicidal tendencies, but I didn't feel a um, you know just the theme brought up my own feelings or my own thoughts or whatever and uh, memories and shit but like uh i didn't feel that connection either like it, it like and, and that's not a critique like i i see that as a positive thing as well like i enjoy things that feel very from the artist and uh mm-hmm. and i was immersed too like it, it's not like oh, I'm just observing this thing that somebody made. Like, you get more immersed, like, you get entranced by something that feels so raw and from the heart and very personal to somebody else. Um, but yeah, I felt like it, it got me thinking about, like, suicide in general and then different mental health things, how people will always be like, do your research because this and that and you're gonna get it wrong and whatever. And it's like, who the fuck said you know how to get it right? Like, mm. cause I don't feel any, I've never felt any kinship to anybody else who is suicidally depressed, ever. Everyone I meet is a fucking bitch. And I'm like, I'm not like mm-hmm. that. Like I, I will joke about suicide all day long. I'm not triggered by shit. And if I, you know, if I end up killing myself one day, then that's just what, don't be like, oh, we should have never joked about that. Like, no, nah, I'm, ain't, ain't no reason to be a pussy about it. Like, but mm-hmm. anyway, not, to, I mean, I got all worked up, but. Uh, no, I like it. No, I like it. I was, I was quiet, not because I was shocked and appalled, but quiet because I'm interested in where you're going. But yeah, there is no, there is, there are such things as individual truths like um mm. which is it, i mean it's it it was a corny phrase uh not too long ago that like i'm, I'm living my truth or whatever but like honestly mm-hmm. i don't disagree with that sentiment you got to live your truth that whole like make sure you don't get it wrong uh a mutual friend of ours actually after uh a book that i wrote that came very much from a personal place but also not like I sort of do uh, the way we came in like that's not really like it's about these twin brothers um, that, uh, not white they're living in I mean from a very similar background to myself but you know I, I stepped outside the box a little bit more with it and uh, a mutual friend of ours like hit me up after reading it and was like uh i'm curious even though i think i know the answer to this but did you have any sensitivity readers and i was like fuck no like (laughs) (laughs) what was the point of them asking that i'm curious uh he was um not coming from the perspective that sensitivity readers is a good thing he was just like i think trying to uh prove a point in his head that like real shit is just it's just real like you don't need that shit when it actually comes from a genuine place i think i know who this person is um but uh yeah no so absolutely and it's interesting that you bring up uh books so there's two ways that we could potentially go with this um you wrote a note that said what does what would bullet ballet look like as a book which i think is an interesting theme of our podcast 
because it's something that we're both interested in about how to capture this kind of energy uh, in a book instead of on film. And then uh, there's another note that says speed and suicide. We'll talk about that. So I guess since we've been talking about suicide, we can continue talking about that. But I don't want to lose the, you know, what does this look like as a book? Because you brought up the way we came in, right? Um, so as far as the suicide angle goes, what you were saying I think is really smart because, man, everybody is just fucking different. And I think that... Uh, this is part of a broader conversation that's been beaten to death about, you know, people demanding, uh, you know, that people, like you said, get suicide right. And <laughs> art is really not, it's not art's job to get anything right, per se, because there is no real right. When I was, uh, the one time that I, uh, like, attempted, and it was like a half-assed attempt, I was drunk as fuck and, you know, just was like fuck it i'm done i like there's this really bad bend in the road uh and so i was driving completely sober uh, that part about being drunk was just a joke um but i was driving completely sober down the road and i was like you know what i'm fucking done and so i headed for this bend in the road i got my car up to like 80 miles an hour right it was like a 30 mile an hour road and i was just gonna like plow through this fence into some trees right and then split second I was like, wait, what the fuck am I doing? Shit. So I like stomped on the gas and the car like spun out and then died. And so I'm sitting in this dead car in the middle of the road at like 2 a.m. Nobody else is around. And then I just turned the car back on and drove the rest of the way home. Now, what is the correct way to tell that story, right? What am I, what am I leaving out that would make that okay? You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. there's... It's, it's both a profound moment that will probably stick with me forever because, it's, again, it's the closest I've ever come. And uh, also it's kind of silly and it's goofy and uh, it doesn't exactly make me look like, a, you know, a cool guy to tell that story. You know what I mean? Like, none of it's glamorized, none of it's, you know... But there's also no broader point to it. It's just kind of a story. Yeah. And now you know something a little bit more about me. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? I'll say the closest I ever came was um, in this. I mean, it's going to be the, the same thing of no glamour, no like it's I've never written about it, even though, you know, the more we talk, the more I feel like things just should be told sort of like this. But like um, I put a gun to my head and I before I knew the cause of like having random blackouts like was a uh, dietary like that I'm hypoglycemic and like I, uh, if I don't have enough sugar and I get in like really heightened, uh, I'm too hot or I'm too um, excited or like anxious or whatever, then like I'll just black out. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, before I knew like the cause of that, I just had random blackouts and didn't know why. Well, I was, I was in that mode and I just um, was actually like 15 or 16 and uh, I went and grabbed one of my dad's guns and put it against my head and uh, blacked out. Mm -hmm. Just that, mm -hmm. that was one of the moments I blacked out. And um, mm -hmm. I just came to, very confused, sort of just in a daze, not really with any 
decision making on my own part like oh I don't want to do this it just kind of zombie like just put the gun back up and just went about my day mm-hmm. yeah so what you're saying is hypoglycemia saves lives exactly so yeah that's 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 the point that's the moral of this story so you got to have some right. kind of health issue to balance out your other shit <laughs> right okay so like so yeah so say that i mean and speed ties into all this too you know because they're all on speed and shit and you know there's a great uh note about chisato where she only likes to do speed by herself which i related to because i would go out with my homies and they'd have this and that whatever and then we'd be in the club and you know this little shitty ass bar that we always went to uh, that my friend would DJ at and uh, I would just go like out to my car and just sit there and be alone while I was rolling tit because um, I didn't like to be around people anyway um, but like yeah all the speed the suicide shit like that if you're writing about this kind of stuff uh, that's that's all there is to it's a really difficult point to get across which is that you know the um the the thing itself is the point right there's no there's no point outside of it right it's not a symbol for like everything's not a symbol for any everything else it's just it is what it is yeah yeah totally like the way that you know you include interesting weirdos just because there's interesting weirdos in the world why would you <laughs> why would you not like when <coughs> something different shows up people got to be like well, what's the point of this it's like because things are different and this is just how it is like mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's just weird all right book talk we're turning bullet ballet into by the way Sukumoto wrote a novelization to snake of june <clears throat> which only had 8,000 copies printed in Japan <clears throat> and has never been translated, which fucking kills me. Damn. Like, if you look if you look for Snake Snake of June novelization, it's nowhere on Google. There's no PDFs, nothing I can even put into Google Translate, but I'm so interested as to what he did because he said it, he made it different from the movie. And I just I want to read that shit the same way that I want to read the book version of Agitator. Um... But it's just, it's one of those problems where, you know, the same way, you know, people in Japan who aren't uh, English speakers will uh, currently have no way of knowing what we're doing, right? I have no way of knowing what Tsukamoto's Snake of June book looks like. But he did novelize it, right? Uh, he said it took him three months. This is all in the Tom Mess book, Iron Man, the cinema of Shinya Tsukamoto. Um, he said it took him three months. It was right when his uh, his son was born. Uh, so he took a break from filmmaking. And he was like, <laughs> and this will resonate for the writers listening to it. And he was like, in retrospect, I don't even really know why I did it. Because I only made like our equivalent of $10,000 off of it for three months work. He's like, and that's, that's low for me. <laughs> and I was like, yep, that's right, buddy. Welcome to publishing. <laughs> Going from the... Going from the world of movies where you're fucking, you know, getting money left and right for distribution deals and all this kind of shit. And then you go to, you're like, I'm going to write a novel. And they're like, here's a, here's a pittance for what you can, what you can make for this thing. <laughs> um, but, uh, but anyway, so Bullet Ballet as a book, I think, what are the elements of the film that could be translated onto the written word well I think um, 
it would be a spare bare bones di uh, not dialogue prose because it's a black and white film and um, mm -hmm. not to be whenever you say that sometimes people think oh bet so like you don't got to put as much thought into it or whatever like but it's like mm. Mm, no because this, this is a black and white film that was obsessed over so that mm -hmm. obsessive quality I think would have to translate to the prose of just Mm -hmm. getting mm -hmm. really down to the, like cutting off all fat um, in order to to get that that sort of black and white like that high contrast black and white feel to it um, mm -hmm. where you're seeing the world in a very real way and in a very interesting and and even sort of ugly beautiful way but mm -hmm. Uh, without the use of like color or imaginative descriptions or whatever it would just have to mm -hmm. be focusing on raw specific details that like are just descriptive just this thing is what it is it's not like overly interesting colorful vibrant it's just you would have to mm -hmm. focus on the right details um, Another thing, only interesting shit. Like he got to cut everything the way he he does in the film. Like with the, at the beginning, I thought it was great because mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there was a scene in something I was working on that I just cut all together because it involved talking to cops, and I was like, I don't. This is so boring. I don't want to write this scene. Mm -hmm. And um, he's talking to the cops, and it cuts out all of the cops' dialogue. Like it only cuts to yep. his responses, and I was right. like, this fucking genius. <laughs> yep. Yep, exactly. Dude, the thing about writing is that if you're ever kind of stuck, people try to add more and add more and add more. And not every time, but most times, it's a matter of actually cutting. Like, you gotta, you got to trim it back to allow for the space for the reader's brain to, to fill in the gaps for you. It's an art, like any other art, you know? I think that... You know these big maximalist works. So I'm reading uh, "My Heart Is a Chainsaw" right now. Um, Rio spot it on Amazon. The hardcover apparently it was on sale for like 15 bucks. So oh nice. Go out and get that shit. But you know I'm reading it. Of course you know love love Stephen's work. We had a love fest for Stephen Graham Jones two weeks ago. Uh, so I won't get back into all that. But you know even even this book right. I mean it is a novel. It's 400 pages, and. Um, you know, he's doing this this kind of thing. Anytime I read a writer who I really like, I, I have to stop myself from trying to be like that writer. Be like, okay, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do it like this. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but reading his work, I was like, oh, okay. So like, so we're doing completely different things because you know he introduces the main character after like the opening uh, weird slasher scene. He like introduces the main character. And, you know, like, he's very deftly inserting information about, like, her past and kind of, like, who she is and all this kind of stuff in, into the book. And um, in a book like Bullet Ballet or in writing like what you and I do, we don't really include any of that kind of stuff. And when I was reading My Heart is a Chainsaw and contrasting it with what I do and what these movies that I like do and even what 
you know, the, the books that I really fuck with do, like Brian Allen Carr's shit, uh, you know, some of the more, like, kind of South American novels or even Japanese novels, there is a kind of empty, uh, airy, nihilistic tone to the minimalism that that I fuck with, but that I, you know, that I realize that, that a lot of readers, uh, and I use readers with a capital R, people who like to read books, that they don't really, uh, they don't really vibe with. You know, they want this kind of story given to you. They want to be able to relate to characters, you know? I had a, I had a buddy who wrote a book that I thought was really good, and I uh, asked an extremely famous uh, literary agent to look at it, uh, somebody who's just worked with, like, legends, you know? And this guy represents somebody who used to be a Broken River author, so we kind of became acquaintances and so he said, yeah, man. He's like, I'll, I'll take a look at it. And he read it and he rejected it. And um, he included like three paragraphs of why he rejected it. And it's, it's because, and I, I suddenly realized, and this might be a ding on my ability to, to edit properly, but I realized that my priorities for like what makes a work of art really work are so different from the mainstream. You know, this guy was saying like, I don't think that this main character could be this and also this. And also I wanted to see his background be different. Uh, I wanted to see more scenes with him where he kind of proved how kind of smart and cool he was. But the book has this like airy nihilistic tone and doesn't do those things. So the guy rejected it. Um, so that, that'll be the end of my ramble there. But, <laughs> but it, it, I'm getting at something. Yeah. I think. No, for sure. The, well, I think it, it's all there also is like in the, um, there's the reality we got to face of being writers and it's like we're influenced by filmmakers who at some point they remain filmmakers because they're like, this is the book world. <laughs> Fuck that. Yeah. Um, yep. But that's what we are. I mean, and I'm not going to stop. You know, the question gets raised all the time. Uh, you know, if uh, our, our homie L posted that uh, if you didn't have readers, would you still do it? Would you still write, you know, a while back, which I think is a valid question and something that, you know, we all... <laughs> The ones who know they're doing something different and hard to market, we all wrestle with. And uh, mm -hmm. I think some of the answers are simple. Like, if you zoom out, there is, there's readers for this shit, just like there's viewers for Bullet Ballet. Um, mm -hmm. Like, there was an extreme fan who was trying to get more recognition for it on Letterboxd that uh, you told me about the dude with Asperger's who mm. watched it for 30 days straight and reviewed it every day. Um, and we we write more for people like that. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not a financially rewarding pursuit in, the, um, in an easily digestible or approachable way. There's no way to plan. Like, this is going to be my step into the industry. This is going to be my big break novel. Like... You can't plan that. It's a gamble. It's a crapshoot. But uh, there, 
there really is something to just uh, to just lean into my corny spiritual side uh, there really is mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. to just being true to yourself no matter what to just like yeah because like you said like the shit that came after bullet ballet you didn't fuck with it as much other people do mm -hmm. you know there's there's mainstream yeah shit. yeah snake of snake of june snake of june won the venice film festival which Tsukamoto was really happy about because he had finally won, you know? Um, not as good of a movie as Bullet Ballet, though. And it's and it's not to say they're not good. So it's not even, like, good and bad that, that you and I are talking about. Like, when, like it, right. it's not... Because um, I'm pretty sure that I'll enjoy those movies. It's one of those things where, like, I, kn I know I like to be surprised... Uh, I could hate them. I could think they're trash. Whatever. I think some Mike movies aren't that good. But uh, it that that's not the approach to take. Like I'm I'm trying to make something good. It's not. I'm we're we're trying to do something true, something spiritual, something that has a certain energy to it. It's not about making it good because there's you and I could both go mainstream so easily and make mm -hmm. really good mainstream shit like better than other mainstream shit because we you know be bringing the things that we're gifted with that we just uh, wa waste on all these you know <laughs> fancy art projects but uh mm -hmm. but yeah no I, I yeah I got to rambling too but I, yeah. it, that's no, it's a, it's a good ramble, man. And it basically comes down to this idea that, you know, the same way that Tom Mess will like Sugimoto films and Miike films and write extensively about them, but he's kind of trapped in this idea of what movies are supposed to do and the proper ways to do them. I think a lot of readers are stuck in that as well, right? They've come to expect a certain thing from a book. And so if the movies and the books that I fuck with are the ones where I'm like, what even is this? You know, somebody, a lot of other people look at that and they're like, what even is this, mm -hmm. right? They mm -hmm. like the familiarity and they like, and so, you know, I mean, it's just important to just keep, keep it in your head that, you know, th those kind of books exist. If you want a great example of how to, you know, uh, of, of a book that you can read that does all of these things, dude, Stephen Graham Jones, he's right there. Uh, Adam Caesar, he's right there. William Boyle. It's right there. Probably some girls too, but I'm not sure. Um, but like, that's just, it's just not us. And I think that the more we accept that and the more that we lean into it, the more interesting the, the books are going to get. One final thing before we wrap up here is the, <clears throat> the actual length of these movies. You know, Tetsuo was uh, 67 minutes. This movie is an hour and 26 minutes. Uh, I think book-wise, that's also what you and I are trying to do, trying to figure out how to pack as much. It's as, I mean, it's a fucking delicate balance, right? Trying to pack as much as we can into a short length of time. Because, like, I want people to be able to read my books in, like, two hours, right? Two hours tops. Yeah, yeah. Pack as much as you can in. Uh, encourage reader participation by suggesting rather than telling. Big-time show versus tell type energy um and uh yeah to do something weird and different and beautiful in in our in our own way uh mix in the 
the prolific the prolificity the prolificness i don't know of mike and you kind of have a mission our mission statement at that point yeah no totally i think that's a fucking great way to wrap this one up cool till next time later